I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes pretty messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns with their own challenges and vulnerabilities. In the age where the pressure of female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow me on Instagram at at New Podcast to find out more and at Loop Growth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. So, wow, this episode, how do I summarize it? Well, the funny, warm, and super sharp author and food writer Hannah Howard is my guest on this episode. She is mama to her four and a half month old and married to a brummy, working, living, and mummaing over in New York City, having given birth at the height of the pandemic and in the epicenter of COVID in America. I had the most wonderful times being to Hannah. We navigated the most enormous range of topics, ranging from US healthcare and birth politics of race and socioeconomics, to her experience of fleeing New York at 37 weeks pregnant, to maternity leave as a freelancer, to breastfeeding after a breast reduction, and then finally with a long portion towards the end of this episode discussing eating disorder recovery in the context of pregnancy and then motherhood, and all the identity issues that come with that. We talked so much on our first video call that it was kind of hard to not accidentally do the entire podcast because it was like we had just known each other for years. I just loved her. If you do want to look her up before the episode, her website is hannahoward.myc and her social media is at hannahmformaryhoward. What I will say is that there is a bit of a health warning for this episode, and I guess that is that I was extremely close to cutting my own experience of anorexia out. Historically, it's something that I don't really share with people but I decided that for the sake of any listeners suffering from mental health challenges, whether you are male or female, that it was time to be open about it. For your context, I had anorexia when I was 17 and received treatment for over a year whilst doing my A-levels. It was something that had been brewing in me for a long time and had probably developed over, I don't know, five years or so, emerging from a very unhappy time in my life. Anorexia is something that I'm now completely recovered from, but I do live with it as a bit of a shadow that I have to be aware of, and so I probably still think about it most days. Dismissed often in the media as a superficial, vacuous teenage girl problem, all I can say is that I encountered an absolutely vast array of eating disorder sufferers from all sections of society during my own recovery. So men, some very young women, and also even elderly women who were seriously, seriously ill. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. So this episode is dedicated to the psychotherapist Maxine Jones who is still working that I had 13 years ago without whom I couldn't possibly have recovered. So thank you Max. Our next guest is a writer and food expert who spent her formative years in New York eating, drinking, 
flipping giant wheels of cheese and managing restaurants. She writes about delicious things, um, beautifully by the way, because I've read her book, appears in food videos, teaches cheese and cooking classes and hosts culinary events. Her memoir, Feast, True Love, In and Out of the Kitchen, I literally could not stop reading. And it debuted as Amazon's number one best-selling memoir in the spring of 2018. I mean, come on. She is a grad of Columbia University in the States, has a master's in fine arts, and has work featured in New York Magazine, Vice, Serious Eats, Bust, Refinery29, and just casually, the Chicago Review of Books. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, puppy and baby daughter Simone. Welcome Hannah Howard. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a privilege to have you join me. I feel like I've got a celebrity. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited <laughs> to chat with you. So probably best if I start off by just describing how we know each other because it's kind of weird but I feel like I've known you forever which is strange. So Hannah's husband, I call him Poe. I'm not sure why I call him Poe. I don't know. So Poe is uh, one of my brother's best friends. So my brother was his best man and Poe was my brother's best man. But tell me, how did you guys meet? Because that is a question that I also do not know the answer to. We met on a dating app called Hinge, which at the time was new. Yeah, it was like, um, I thought a little different than the other dating apps. It connected you to friends of your Facebook friends, so it felt somehow a little less random. And we started chatting Christmas, almost coming on six years ago, and Tony was home with his family near Birmingham, and he was having some Stilton and port, and I really love cheese, so I was, you know, we don't really have like a cheese Christmas tradition here. My family Christmas tradition Um, We're Jewish and we usually go to the movies and have Chinese food. So we were talking about our Christmases. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think it's like a very New York Jewish Christmas. And it took us more than two months to have our first date because I canceled once. He then had a big work trip for six weeks, which in online dating time is like might as well be forever. Um, So I kind of thought that this guy seemed really nice and cute, but there was no way we were actually going to meet. And then two months later, we had our first date and it's been pretty amazing ever since. We're almost uh, about to celebrate our two year wedding anniversary next month. That is crazy. That has gone by so quickly. I can't believe how quickly that's gone. And so together you have baby Simone, beautiful name. How old is Simone now? So she's uh, four and a half months. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I think right pretty much exactly there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, I touched a little bit on it in the introduction. But tell me about you and what you do. And obviously, this amazing book that is out at the moment. Yeah, so I I'm a food writer, um, which is I feel really lucky to get to say that because I think I would if you had told me that I could have that as a job I would when I was maybe a teenager I would have thought that was like too good to be true it seemed kind of impractical but it combines the things I love the most which is being around food cooking food eating food and writing I've always loved books and stories and kind of loved disappearing into a novel. So in terms of my actual work, I have sort of a hodgepodge, freelance, self-employed job. Um, So I write books. Feast came out now two years ago. And then I have another book called 
tentatively Plenty, which is a memoir about Simone and having my own family, but also the family of amazing women in food that I've kind of created and and friends and mentors um, who are doing wonderful things in the food world. So I write some journalism and some personal essays and things like that. And then I also, um, to kind of pay the bills, I I do some copywriting for more corporate, uh, mostly food clients. So from, from specialty food shops to food importers, I'll write, I'm just working on a press release about a Tuscan chocolate that won an award, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's kind. It is kind of a dream job. I love it. I really do. And I even sometimes I I get grumpy. You know, I, like any job, there's parts that are less sexy and exciting than other parts. But even those parts, I still kind of enjoy. So I feel very lucky. I think that's yeah. It's a good good position to be in. And I mean, I'm kind of. I'm sure that everyone else is, who's listening is probably thinking the same as me, which is like, right, so you have a four and a half month old and you are currently teaching and writing and just casually releasing your second memoir and, you know, other collection of stories. And I think we're all kind of asking ourselves quite how this is happening. So tell us, how is this happening? How are you doing this? Well, some days it's happening better than other days. Let me say that. Like, I mean, right now, I mean, we've all felt this way. I have about a million things to do on my list, and I'm kind of looking at it like, hmm, how exactly is that going to work? One of the reasons I'm able to do it is because Poe slash Tony slash my husband um, is on leave from work. So he has a six-month parental leave that he took as the primary caregiver which is very unusual. I, I think it's very unusual everywhere. It's very unusual for anyone to get six months of leave in the States. There's no official parent leave in the States. Of course, individual companies and states like do give some things. But because I work for myself, I officially got nothing. So I feel like it's just sort of been this hodgepodge of like, some days, like Tony's watching Simone, and then I take a break and feed her. He watches her more, and then I get a little bit done during her nap, and then I get way less done than I planned, and then I freak out, and then he calms me down, and then rinse and repeat. <laughs> Am I right in saying that when you say six months leave, that's like six months paid leave? That's correct, yeah. That is just, and for the States, I mean, that is so unusual. It's really, really unusual. He works for Bloomberg. I think it's just really wonderful. I think it's one of the reasons like he still works there. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I'm right in saying that if you leave Bloomberg, you can't go back, right? Like that's how they keep you. Yeah, it's like the mafia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, I've yeah, it's it's so funny. I've I wonder what it would be like to have something like that myself, not really having that experience. Like a job to come back to, a finite time that's set aside for being a mom. I'm a little jealous, but I also feel really lucky that I do have work that's incredibly flexible, that I can sort of say no to a project when I'm feeling overwhelmed, and then yes, when I'm feeling like I have more bandwidth. Um, so I don't know. It's it, it swings and roundabouts, right? I think there are yeah. so many pros and cons to both. And I think the insta mum tribe that's out there at the moment that kind of paints this picture of like, I've got my own business and I've got my beautiful child and everything's so 
perfect and isn't it a dream to have your own business and be a parent and whatever and I I think sometimes it's easy to forget that actually obviously being self-employed has a ton of downsides um mainly that if you don't work you don't get paid absolutely uh, (laughs) (laughs) right yeah and we were talking we were just talking about that about like also it's different here in the U.S. but if Tony didn't have his job like I don't get any health insurance I don't get any you know there's no no benefits at all besides the ones that of course come with come with the package but it's it's wonderful and it's really hard Mm. And I guess obviously that's a kind of, for my British listeners, obviously this is a different, this is a whole different kettle of fish because obviously we're very lucky in that we have universal healthcare and it's, you know, free. Um, But I guess you don't think about that really in the States because it's such a thing that, oh, well, what what is the healthcare like when you're with a particular company? But obviously each package is completely different. So surely that must impact your pregnancy as well if you are pregnant and you're employed like the type the quality of the care that you get and also like what you get postnatally as well like from just anecdotally are you aware of that being being an issue oh it's a huge issue and I you know friends of mine my really good friend who works for herself I think it's one of the reasons she's not having a child because it's so stressful to navigate and it's just so expensive to get healthcare if you don't happen to have really good insurance through your employer. So it sucks. You know, people are talking about like tens of thousands of dollars of hospital bills. And usually you can access pretty good care. It just becomes insanely expensive, which is terrible, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, people have that all the time. And I just feel really lucky because I've been in before Tony and I were married and I was on my own healthcare. I have had like crazy, crazy bills for small, like for small things. Um, And it's really stressful. And to put that stress on top of just the whole pregnancy, baby experience, which is already so intense, just like it's too much, I think. And I think it sucks. Yeah. It's good to talk about, but I don't even know how it works in the States. If you don't have any insurance and you are pregnant, what happens? I think there is some sort of protection where you're, you have to get care. Like the hospital is required to, you show up delivering a baby, they're required to deliver the baby. Um, I think, but you just end up with these huge bills and then many times people are unable to pay them and they just end up having debt and, or people kind of avoid. I have a really good friend who's a midwife at a hospital in Queens and she serves a really like low income demographic and people will be kind of afraid of the cost of care and they'll show up for the first time like 36 weeks pregnant or something because they've avoided coming in because it's so expensive. So I think that's why another big reason we have really bad outcomes, um, which are kind of terrifying, especially for black women and women of color here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think... We obviously have the same issues that I think are down to all sorts of systemic and structural racism. And there's a, there's a lot of conversation about it at the moment on um, a lot of the NHS midwifery forums. And I, you know, again, as with all these things, and particularly with what's going on in politics and the news at the moment, I think people are trying to 
amplify this and give this more. And I think given all the health complications, how much more likely you are to suffer from diabetes, preeclampsia and really life threatening conditions. Um, if you are uh, BAME, sadly, not being in the States doesn't fix it clearly. Yes, right. Of course, it's not like an easy fix. But I do think it might be even worse here. So there you go. Yeah. Oh, God. It's just it's yeah, it's horrendous. Yeah, it's too much to talk about with the States. It's just it's just crazy. Okay, so obviously, you've had Poe being super involved because of the benefit of paternity leave. And it's wonderful. But you had a baby in I mean, in lockdown, right? Yeah. So it's also hard, been hard for me to sort of separate like how much of things going on are baby related and how much is COVID related because of course my world has changed with the baby and then the outside world has also changed in all the ways. I think also that in the US it's more usual to, for people to see um, OBGYNs during their pregnancy and that you only see a mid, like seeing a midwife is less usual. So I had been seeing um, an OB who was just my like my doctor, and I really didn't love it. It felt like sort of a a cold. Pra- I think it's just a New York City thing, so big, but it felt this sort of like machine like corporate practice. And I ended up getting a doula that was recommended to me, and she kind of helped me find a provider who was more my speed. So I switched to seeing a midwife actually here in Brooklyn, who I really liked. I like halfway through my pregnancy and I feel like we had just really like spent a lot of time making all these decisions about who we wanted to see the hospital we wanted to go to have the birth in we did a hospital tour um, we did a birth class we did all this stuff I was so excited I had this whole vision and between one week and the next visiting this midwife the first week you know COVID was starting to happen here in New York and so this was Um, I had Simone April 9th. So this was probably the middle of March um, on my midwife visit. And she was reassuring me that because I was so afraid, like, what is what are the hospitals going to be like these hospital, the hospital that I was going to deliver in was like the heart of COVID cases in New York. And she was very reassuring that the labor and delivery floor was sort of a sacred space and that of course, I could still have my doula. And between that and the next week that I had was scheduled to have my next appointment, first, they came out that they were not going to allow a doula or anyone with you besides your partner. But then the thing that kind of blew my mind in a really scary way was they announced that the hospital system, New York Presbyterian was no longer going to allow partners to be with you when you had your baby. So mothers were delivering babies alone, um, which happened in New York for I think it happened for about three weeks before the governor shut that down. But that terrified me. And this was going on right as I was about to give birth. I can't even imagine what that must have been like I mean that the the all the women I know who are mums already and were mums pre-covid are like I don't even understand how this is a thing and when they said no birth partners they said the same thing in the UK exactly the same they ended up reversing the whole thing because they were like the maternal outcomes have been so poor in comparison because it's so against nature to give birth by yourself. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. And I greeted this news with like a ton of tears and panic. And yeah, it is. And of course, you know, I 
my really good friend, actually, this is my Bloomberg friend, um, had her baby two weeks after me. And at that point, they had reversed the partner decision halfway. So her her husband was allowed, or her boyfriend, rather, was allowed to be there until the baby was born. Then they gave them like an hour, and then they kicked him out, <laughs> which is sort of when you need the partner to the most, like, because you're recovering, you know. So and I, I was just talking to him about it. And he's like, Yeah, I didn't know what to do. I was like walking around the city with my mask, you know, like, what do I do? You know, <laughs> so at that point, for me, I so my parents live in New Jersey, about an hour and a half away from us. And it was also uh, New Jersey was also like one of the early COVID hotspots in the US. But where they live, it's pretty rural. So it's like very spread out. So it just seemed like a a different sort of situation. And the hospitals did not have that policy there. And so we started calling doctors and more doctors and like lots of doctors all around them to see if someone would take me. But I just kept getting no's because I think a lot of standard practice is that they won't take someone so late in their pregnancy. At this point, I was 37 weeks pregnant, I think. Um, so it was like any day. And then th- because of the pandemic, they especially weren't interested in new patients from New York City. So eventually, my mom ended up just begging her doctor. She goes to a family practice. So they had someone with, they had an OBGYN there and they said yes. And I went into the parking lot of the practice and got a COVID test and um, was so relieved. And in one day we came, um, my dad came into the city, we packed up, we finished setting up the nursery. We packed up all my stuff, Tony's stuff, the dog stuff, the baby stuff, threw it in his car, drove to New Jersey. And then two weeks later, had the baby in Hunterdon Medical Center in the middle of New Jersey. <laughs> so I mean, this is just the most wild story. And there must be so many women and people listening to this who have gone through similar things. But it's like being a, I, I kind of, you were fleeing. You were fleeing yeah. your home. Yeah. Like, yeah, we were fleeing our home. And um, yeah, and you know, and there were certain perks too to being like here in New York City because it's just so crowded. I think in, in normal times, I'm not sure about in COVID times, but most of the rooms were shared for labor and delivery. And then if you wanted a private room, you had to pay extra. I know in Manhattan, like sometimes it was a thousand dollars a night, you know, to have the pri- just to have privacy. Hang on, you were in labor in the same room as somebody else, or maybe they gave they gave you like a share. You had, a, I think there there was um, some privacy for the actual labor, but then recovery was in a shared room. But just because we were in this like much uh, less densely populated area. In New Jersey, like there's plenty of space. All the rooms were private rooms. Tony had a nice bed to sleep on. Not that he was doing too much sleep, but he, you know, when he did get some rest, like you know, whereas in this in New York City, it's just like a chair. Um, so there were some perks, oh, yeah. but it was weird. I mean, we they took his temperature every couple of hours. Um, we weren't allowed to ever leave the room, so we were there for three days. And it did sort of this feel of sort of like time warp in this one one room. Um, I had to labor in a mask, which was really hard because I was doing a lot of vomiting. So it was like I, I, I didn't keep the mask on that successfully, but um, it was pretty uncomfortable. So you know, it was difficult. Yeah, yeah I and I think 
And in normal times, like, of course, you know, we would have visitor, like, you know, we were planning in Brooklyn, you know, my parents would probably come by and visit in the hospital and, you know, people would come by the house afterwards. And we didn't, I do feel kind of sad that, you know, we didn't get to have that experience that I had envisioned. Yes. Yeah. I can't even, I mean, and funnily enough, I, I was speaking to another guest, um, who's coming on another episode and she was saying that we were we were just sympathizing together for the people and women who are having babies during covid and particularly people like you who are having their babies right at the peak of the pandemic and just saying that you know that joy you know of and being able to kind of share it with lots of people is essentially it, it's robbed from you a little bit so yeah. i mean how did that make you feel I mean, you know, it was right. It was like so many feelings. It was incredibly joyful, wonderful time. And it was really also hard and sad. And I did have a lot of ideas of bringing the baby in my neighborhood to our favorite coffee shop next door. They were like, they, you know, I was a regular and they were like so excited to meet the baby and um, to the park. And we have friends here who have a baby who's a little older. And there is this arty cinema that has afternoon, like baby friendly showings, and we were going to bring the baby and um, just all these ideas I had. And of course, they were just ideas, but none of those came to fruition. On the other hand, I am definitely prone to FOMO. And having this is my first baby. And I don't think I realized in those early days, the extent of the time that especially trying to feed the baby, like it was just always there was very little capacity for me to be doing much else. And so in regular times, I might have felt sad that I was missing out on all the goings on around me in the world in New York. Um, but I wasn't missing out on any goings on. So that was sort of a weird silver lining. And of course, another big silver lining was that my parents are close and would have come, of course, but I think they have really, they really enjoyed getting to be around for all of the baby time and just get to share that with us and experience that to another extent. So that was the upside. And then of course, another downside is that all of Tony's family still haven't met Simone and that makes me sad. That must be really hard for his family, like really hard. Yeah. Do you do a lot of like FaceTime with them? Yeah, we do a lot of FaceTime with them for sure. And we're really hoping on a uh, Christmas trip. Even if we have to quarantine for two weeks, Tony's parents have like a pretty big house. So we could do that. And nice. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the, we just got her passport. But I'm I'm trying to not get my hopes up too much because things are still changing all the time and might not be able to happen. Is is the baby passport just like the funniest thing yes. ever? Like the baby, the baby mugshot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my son, he just had a tendency to hold his head to one side or another, so I'd have to balance it, looking up, and then try and take the photo as like quickly as possible before his head just kind of like lolled to one side again. So he just looks sort of confused and uncomfortable in his passport picture. Simone yeah. looks very <laughs> serious. The way we did it was we went to the the post office in New Jersey and they had a screen set up and Tony just held Simone above his head, sort of like in the Lion King posture. (laughs) And miraculously she cooperated, you know, if if she was in a different mood, it wouldn't have worked out so well. That's amazing. I've got a really good image now of him doing that. 
So just to go back to your work situation and what you do, I mean, that must have fundamentally affected your transition back to any sort of work because surely there was no work. Yeah. Well, I had um, submitted, I submitted the draft of my second book to my editor uh, one week, exactly one week before the birth. So that was like a big piece of work that was off my plate. (laughs) And it was kind of good. Like I, you know, I, um, some of the work that I have had in the past is not going to be the same anymore, for sure. Like I did a lot of writing about food events and that sort of thing. But, you know, I've had um, other things that have kind of blossomed. Like, for example, one of those writing about food events kind of gigs that I had was through Eventbrite. And I thought, surely that's going to be over now that there is a pandemic. But actually, it's morphed into writing about online events and they kind of opened it up. So I don't even just write about food events. I write about like any cool things happening online. Mm. Um, So things have changed, but I've been surprised and I think incredibly lucky that I've had quite a lot of work to do. And and even though um, restaurants have really struggled here, a lot of my work is with retail food and that's kind of blossoming, I feel like, because people are spending so much more time cooking at home and enjoying. So when people would do kind of a treat yourself big night, like that was usually going out, but now it's often staying in. And so all of these specialty producers of fancy food, um, even though like so much has shifted, I've been getting work and and working a lot. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's been, it's been really interesting looking at the kind of retail trends I guess of like what has gone up and what has gone down what are we like spending our money on and one of my favorite pastimes at my mother-in-law's house she collects um BBC good food magazines which it's like an institution that's been around for a really long time and um and it's been so interesting reading it all the editions like since the pandemic and you can see how the whole like writing and the creative arc of the magazines just completely changed because it's like here are cocktails you can make at home here are 10 restaurants that are starting to deliver and there's obviously a ton of writing that is still going into all of this stuff because people still want to enjoy themselves that's why alcohol consumption has gone through the roof exactly (laughs) yeah right so it's really really shifted and uh, here there's also been this huge food media reckoning one of our um, big I don't know how popular it is across the pond but um Bon Appetit uh, is one of the big food magazines here, and especially their video channel is super popular on YouTube. And the former editor-in-chief got ousted for dressing up in brown face, and those photos resurfaced. And there's been a lot of shakeups and change. And I think that that's like, I, I think it's still the shaking is still very much in process. So I don't know what the food media is going to look like soon. And I know it's also been a hard time and a lot of budgets have been cut, but I think that it's kind of exciting and that people are really invested in uh, building a better world. Mm. 
And did you feel that, um, obviously, because, you know, Feast came out a couple of years ago, that must have really helped in terms of the influx of work that you've had coming in. And given that you were in a very work-starved situation as for freelancers at the moment, that must have helped an awful lot. Like, do you feel like it's changed your current situation, having written Feast before, maybe? I have two, I feel like, equally loud parts of my brain. And one of the parts was just so, you know, having writing a book is something I wanted to do, wanted to do my whole life and having it out in the world and getting these responses was so meaningful and amazing and touching and really like every person like you who have said that they liked the book or, you know, said that they related or whatever it was, like really just this like genuine like, oh, yay, like, you know, just happiness. But then the other part of me that I have to be honest about is like, where's my, you know, where's my review in the New York Times? Where's my, um, (laughs) (laughs) why was I? I, you know, I know that like Oprah doesn't even do a show, but I feel like I should be on Oprah, you know, um, that kind of (laughs) this, this, like, I don't know if it's like the greedy part or something or the ambitious part or the ego part, but like, just to be honest, you know, I, I kind of, I think that I was hoping that my life and my work would change a little more than it did. But now that I now that it's been two years and I look back, maybe I want to revise that because maybe it has been been a shift and it has helped. But I think more just more in a slow, steady way than with some big fireworks. And now, like I got this amazing, flashy gig. But I do think it has given me sort of a foundation to do more of what I've already done, but like in a bigger way and with some more exciting clients and with more people. And so things have grown, but it's been rather gradual. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, tell us a little bit about, I mean, obviously I read it, but um, in your own words, tell us a little bit about the book, because I feel like I had so many questions as I was reading it because I was thinking, wow, my God, how did this affect her pregnancy? How did this affect Mm. her birth? How did this affect her coming back? And that was, and obviously Feast, it's from a different time. It's from two years ago. You weren't pregnant. You weren't thinking about this yet, maybe. And also it's reflecting a different portion of your life. So obviously you hadn't met your now husband at that time. So yeah, it'd be great to just hear an overview because I have so many questions about that. (laughs) Yeah, publishing is really slow. So when it did come out two years ago, you know, I did most of the I had mostly finished writing it three years ago. And then even that I was writing about so so feast is in a really short elevator pitch is that it's um, my story of working my way through restaurants and falling in love with food and some men who were very bad for me and also struggling with and recovering from an eating disorder. Um, okay. And it mostly, yeah, and I'm, I'm about to turn 33 and this is mostly about me during college and shortly thereafter. So definitely a, diff- a different time in my life. A different era. So Hannah, just say if I'm saying too much, that hopefully you don't mind me sharing that. Well, in the book, you talk about the fact that you had a breast reduction in high school, mm-hmm. which to me seems so young to go through surgery as major as that. Um, which I really wanted to ask about from a kind of breastfeeding journey perspective um, and how that is, especially. But then also, 
recovering from an eating, I think you call it overeating disorder. Um, that So many terms, but I think of all, yeah, I had a lot of, I had that and then also the restriction and anorexia side, but I kind of see it as two sides of the same coin as just like some really unhealthy, unhappy, dysfunctional relationship with food and with my body. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's so closely interlinked both of those things like binge eating disorder and anorexia and you often find that people that have had anorexia have also been like you know overweight maybe earlier in their life and also vice versa you know people that do undergo really drastic weight loss um or gastric bypass or other surgeries or even have just lost through diet and exercise a lot of weight by themselves you can see it kind of slipping you know to the maybe mentally unhealthy side of things so um but obviously pregnancy and what it does to your body and self-image and stuff it would just be really interesting to hear I guess firstly about the breast production thing but then also about how that affected the eating disorder because I know that that was like a huge a huge part of the book and something that really really resonated with um me in particular absolutely okay so for the breast reduction surgery yes I was really young when I had my breast reduction surgery. And I was so young that I, you know, I don't remember so well that many of the details. And so I was kind of quizzing my mom about, um, cause I remember we had asked at the time about future breastfeeding, although that seemed very abstract and distant then. And she kind of remembered better than I did that the doctor had said, that most likely I would be able to breastfeed perfectly well, but he couldn't really guarantee it. And I think that's sort of one of the like protecting him, you know, you can't make promises or something. But I really didn't know um, if I was going to be able to breastfeed. And I kind I felt pretty peaceful for some reason about that fact that I, I knew that I wanted to try. I know that we're all very inundated with lots of sort of breastfeeding propaganda about how amazing it is. So I had that in my head. So I thought I would try. And then if it didn't work out, that's what formula is for. Um, but somehow over the course of actually having the baby, I felt so much that that sort of pressure to breastfeed kind of ramped up. And maybe some of it was coming from outside sources. And some of it was just coming from my own inner perfectionism or something. So I was able to breastfeed. I still am. But we had a really difficult time at the beginning. Um, Simone was born not like incredibly small, but on the smaller end. And she was losing a lot of weight. And I know babies commonly, newborns lose like some percentage of their birth weight, but hers was on the higher end. And they were really worried. Um, so right at the beginning, we started supplementing her so that we were doing breastfeeding and then I was pumping and then we were also doing formula and it was very emotionally exhausting. And I think kind of, and I think breastfeeding is feeding in general is the whole thing is, um, but I was really, I guess it sort of also can morph into the second question about being in recovery from an eating disorder and the journey of pregnancy and birth and everything. Um, I. I was really proud of my body. I was like, wow, um, I've put my body through a lot, like lo mostly lots of hating it and being mean to it. And then also, you know, not feeding it well for so many years. 
And yet it's still like showing up for me. And it was very cool that it was helping to feed my daughter, even if it didn't do 100% of feeding my daughter. Um, Right now I'm doing like mostly breastfeeding and still doing some formula in the mix. You're still feeding her, even if it's not with breast. Absolutely. Right. And um, um, right. Totally. And I hate like... You know, we, we had this lactation consultant came around. She recommended this video. And the first half was full of these very helpful tips about breastfeeding and positions and latching. But the second half was just such heavy-handed propaganda that basically, you know, if you don't breastfeed, you'll never bond with your child and they'll be messed up for life. And But even at the time, like having just had a baby – both Tony and I were like laughing because it was just ridiculous. Like clearly that is absurd. And, but it also felt almost cruel to be telling this, like here I am with this baby on my boob, like crying because she won't latch or she's been there for like one hour and doesn't seem, nothing seems to be happening. And here's this dude on the video, you know, like, which is really unhelpful and really wrong. So I hate that pressure, but I do, you know, I had heard, I think this is something that I had heard before during my eating disorder recovery that, you know, my eating disorder kind of wants to just judge my body only by its size. And, you know, our bodies are remarkable. And if I could really appreciate, you know, my ears and my vocal cords for letting me have this conversation with you and my arms for giving really good hugs and my legs for, you know, taking me miles all around New York City, like that's pretty awesome. And I and I heard that and intellectually I understood it, but I was like, okay, yeah, like I get that, but I still hate the way my thighs rub together or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but something about my body like growing another person really did amaze me. And I felt that sort of thing of like, wow, like my body's badass, like it's doing something incredible. And I do still feel that way. I definitely still have, of course, also like the whole, yeah, like the whole thing's kind of a mind fuck to anyone with any kind of body images, because your body's just like doing these crazy things and growing in these crazy ways. But I just... I think that my recovery is what gave me enough sanity to like get through that and to kind of, in general, I've felt a lot of peace and gratitude and appreciation for my body. And also something too about like growing a person inside me made me want to like, it got rid of a lot of the noise that still left over of this like very ingrained diet culture talk about like, oh, you know, maybe I'll um, like be cool air quote, like good, you know, and and have less or, you know, whatever. It it, it kind of quieted that because I just felt like I wanted to nourish myself and the proto baby within me the best I could. And sometimes that meant like salads and smoothies. And sometimes that meant like burgers and, you know, whatever it was. Um, It felt like a very recovery journey for a lot of the part of it. A lot of parts of it, mm-hmm. and I have to say, like I, th- I can, I think um, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying there because it, it, it is like um, you know, I'm I 
I'm also an eating disorder recoverer. I've never actually said that publicly, so that's kind of a big deal for me Yay, to say. Yay, I'm honored to um, be part of <laughs> Uh, So I had anorexia at school and um, for anybody who knew me at that time, I'm really sorry because I think that must, I must have been pretty difficult to be around. And, you know, as, as you know, as well, it's it's always kind of there, like you learn to sort of live with it and it's there. You just learn to kind of ignore it. It's just like the annoying person at the party that you don't really want to speak to. That's like, kind of loud and obnoxious sometimes um and I found that being pregnant it was it was like a really nice reason to just ignore it and just be like you know and I love that you use that word nourish because that's exactly how it felt it was just like I this is a really good reason to be kind to myself and not be like punishing myself um and yeah I just that I so relate to that I just I think that makes a a ton of sense what but what I did find difficult and I I would be curious to get your view on this as well was that um obviously this um, my anorexia was a, a long time ago now um but I found that pregnancy gives people an excuse to comment on your body in a way that it doesn't when you're not pregnant. So people will say, oh, you're, oh, you're really big or, oh, you're smaller than I thought you would be or whatever. And quite a few of those comments really stuck with me, actually, when I had been feeling really confident and somebody would then say something and I was like, oh, I don't know if you had this as well. Yes, absolutely. I don't know what, I think it's just a general rule. I'm, I bet anyone listening, I hope, kind of feels this way but just like there's so much else you can comment on besides someone's body it's like really not necessary (laughs) like just you know you never know what you're gonna trigger and yeah something about pregnancy gives people this feeling that um they should just yeah people have said to someone said to me oh you don't look pregnant you just look chubby like (laughs) thanks I think she was like kind of joking but still someone asked um just ask like, oh, how much weight have you gained? And then, and then I was sort of like, and you know, part of my recovery is I don't weigh myself, which was something I was really worried about during pregnancy. Yeah. It's like just noise that can be avoided. Um, But here at least at every appointment, they weigh you. And um, you know, I, I always ask to be weighed backwards and just for them to like not mention it unless you know, there's something really important happening with that because there's usually not there. There's not. But anyway, um, yeah, they went on to qualify their comment when I told them that I, I don't weigh myself that like, oh, because it looks like you gained like a great amount of weight or something. And it's like, okay, great. Thanks. Like, what am I thanks. supposed to do with that information? Right. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, I found myself I wasn't. So when they would weigh me because it, it is such a trigger for me is because I mean mine was so bad at one point I was weighing myself like five or six times a day it was completely insane because obviously it is insane that's sort of the point and um and I just wouldn't look so I'd just look at my feet or I'd look away or whatever but also like it's in my notes do you know what I mean it says like this person's had a had a problem uh and then they would just read it out and it's like don't read it out please please well, don't read it out yeah, and I it's so funny one of the um at this office that I have been going to in New Jersey you know I asked every time for them to please not tell my me my weight that's so annoying I'm sorry they do that and of course the the nurse was like oh I, I remember you you're the one who doesn't 
want to know your weight and I was like oh yeah that's me and then she said oh you look you look great like you've lost a lot of weight and like she couldn't make that connection that you know I don't know what was going on in her head but yeah I've kind of learned I guess like to be more and more because right people have you know right they write it in like big font or something and send it to you or something. So I've been asking to for them to not share my weight, but it's very hard to not see that number. It does seem to follow you around. It totally does. And I mean, obviously, you're what I mean, pregnancy is one thing. And I think you've always got that. And again, I don't know if this reflects your experience. But I found that I was a bit like, well, you know what, I'm, I'm fucking pregnant. So like, you can just like I just don't care in, in on one level it's like I just don't really care how much weight I've gained and if you want to grow a human and then talk about it then that's fine but when I had the baby I then found that I don't know so I got <laughs> got a comment from one person she probably doesn't even remember that she said this um hopefully um and she said oh my god Letty you've nearly lost all the baby weight <laughs> and I was like four and a, four months like down the line and I was You're a bit like, like <laughs> thinking about that I had a child with a serious health condition I was completely in the throes of that I was very depressed like I had a really rough time after my son was born and I just it was just not helpful it was really unhelpful and um, so I found the post post-pregnancy side of that much much harder but I, I don't know about how how you've been feeling about that in that respect yeah, it's been it's been okay and and even good at some points and it's been really rough in other points. I think I I still like I don't love my C-section scar. I really do. I also had an emergency C-section that I like really didn't want. So I feel like mm-hmm. I'm still sort of processing all of that and the birth itself and it's like a very physical reminder and I've had some pelvic floor issues that are like not fun and it's it's tough. And, and I, I think I did lose a lot of the pregnancy weight pretty fast. But then my body has also like changed in some ways. And I feel like mm-hmm. I feel, you know, it's a big thing. And I feel different. And that doesn't always feel good. Mm. And I guess because so much of your your face is on things, and it's like, it, it is a lot about image when it's you know, we live in an age of social media, and a lot of your own business is self promotion it can be easy to kind of feel self-conscious in that space as well, I can imagine. Yes, I definitely had, I think I I was really feeling that when I was doing some book promotion, you know, pre-COVID and I got to go on a book tour and have a book party. Um, But I feel like I was out there, my image and my physical self uh, bunch. And I, all these old thoughts were kind of coming up and that, you know, I was writing about, recovering from an eating disorder but my body like wasn't right and you know just all this all this judgment and everything and I've like it's a practice to be kinder to myself and also I do believe you know having a daughter I know she's still really really little but that our appearances are such a a a part, they're a part of who we are. They're not necessarily a small part of who we are, but they're one part of our so many, our so so much multifaceted selves. And um, to try to like practice what I what I preach, it's always harder to to be like give yourself that kindness and gentleness than it is, I think, to give other to extend it to other people. But I'm working mm-hmm. on it, and I and I know too that the things and people that I 
love seeing on social media are not necessarily like the shiny, perfect things anyway, but they're the little mm-hmm. bit more real and messy and honest and complicated. And, and so I think that's more interesting anyway. And I mean, you were talking about Simone and um, thinking about passing down some of like these attitudes or like just societal stuff like from our generation because I do believe that the generation before us and obviously people you need to go and read Hannah's book to read more about this but you know the generation but before us you know has particular attitudes about you know how you should look or whatever and it it does like it, it does kind of get passed down in some way and I personally it sounds it sounds like a really awful thing to say and I can't even really believe I'm saying it out loud but like I was I was kind of relieved to be having a boy and not a girl which is really awful but part of the reason why I felt that is because I thought a it's just really hard to be a woman like in general like a lot of the time like you're already starting from I think a bit further back in the race um but also because you know I just get scared sometimes or insecure that I will pass some of this stuff down to her and some of these insecurities and stuff as well. So, I mean, is that something that, you know, you think about or have kind of made made peace with or? Oh yeah. It's definitely a fear of mine for sure. And I do think this stuff gets passed down through families. Definitely. And I, but I really think that all I can do, like the, the only thing I can do in that regard is to really continue to take my recovery seriously and to just keep doing that sort of emotional, mental, spiritual work. And hopefully I can pass that along to my daughter in addition to whatever baggage that, you know, no one's perfect so that I will not be able (laughs) to release. um, And that like those messages will hopefully outpower. I do think things are like slowly shifting, you know, body positivity is something that's like, you know, I, I just I never saw images growing up of anyone that wasn't like stick thin. And, and that's not necessarily the case. I think for, you know, the media now. So I think there's still such a long way to go. But I'm also kind of hopeful that things are going to change in a really positive direction as mm. my daughter grows up. But I, of course, I'm totally Definitely. worried. That too. Like it's all, it's all there. And I think, you know, the first yeah. time I started to feel insecure about my body, I was so, like, those are some of my first memories. I was so young and I don't wish that on anyone. That's, that's like such a waste of childhood. Yeah. I couldn't, I could not agree more. Like it, it is just such a, it is such a waste of time, but I mean, you know what, like it, as with all these things, like I think it just gives you a deeper like empathy and understanding. And also you have to really face yourself, I think to, you know, it's a, it's a very serious mental health issue. And I shamefully ignorant about um, overeating disorder, but um, I know that particularly anorexia and bulimia, I mean, it's the highest mortality rate of any mental illness out there. So including paranoid schizophrenia, alcoholism, depression, etc. Anorexia kills one in 10 people that have it. So it's very, very serious. But you know, when you recover from it and get through it, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and um, makes you a better person. Life would be very boring if it was all perfect. <laughs> That's what yeah, I, like to I, I totally agree. You know, this was my like, 
that we're just chatting about this now, like, and I feel like I feel pretty okay with that. And at one time, this was my deepest, darkest secret. And I was so full of shame about it. And I would be horrified to tell anyone much less the public and you know, anyone who might happen to hear this podcast or anyone who might happen to read my book. Um, So yeah, I think as our kids get as our babies become like kids and teenagers, I don't know, like the, no one gets to escape having issues and struggles. And I just hope that, that they do feel yeah. equipped to speak about them and get help and not have shame around whatever's going on because we all have stuff. Mm. Oh yeah. I think um, all I can say is that you totally inspired me um, by our first conversation before you I'd even bread feast or talked about this and um, I mean I had a really well one of my best friends didn't even know that I had had this problem and I, until about four years after we'd even been friends and she was like I just can't even believe I didn't know this about you and I was bit like oh well you know it never came up but you know the truth is yes, okay, it didn't come up, but I was also very d- deeply ashamed of it. So it's it's nice to have an excuse to be open about it, because I can see that, you know, it's kind of kind of worked out for you. So <laughs> absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're talking about it. And I think that's one of the things that I didn't foresee as being something wonderful that would come out of my book, because it's just kind of gives people an in, I think, for a topic that is awkward. And, you know, it's, it's hard to just to just kind of say, Oh, yeah, I used to have an eating disorder. So I have been really grateful to just have that excuse to talk to people about something that is really difficult to talk about. For sure, for sure. And I mean, it'd be interesting to hear from listeners obviously if you guys have similar experiences or whatever of course like um we'll read out all hannah's social handles and stuff at the end of this podcast but you know obviously feel free to get in touch um if you've been affected by any of the issues that we've discussed on today's episode so hannah i know we're running out of time but i want to um ask you a couple of questions final questions before i release you but i could talk to you forever which is kind of a problem um, <laughs> it's a good problem so, it's a nice problem so I guess I asked this to all my guests but I'm gonna slightly rephrase it which is so usually I say like what do you kind of think is the top priority for employers government society to focus on which is kind of a huge question what I more wanted to focus on is how do you feel that people without babies so whether it's just like men who aren't dads yet or just like female friends who haven't had babies yet or just don't want to have babies that's not their choice like how how can they support people who are new mums or who are pregnant and going through this at the moment well for me um I really also in the time of COVID when I can feel a little lonely and a little isolated I think just reach out I think having friends and family send hellos send love just say how you do how are you doing like means so much to me and makes me feel connected because I think that this whole process can feel really lonely and kind of heavy and I think that sense of community and being 
connected for me has made all the difference. Yeah, 100%. And I, I just can't even say that more. So if you know somebody who's been going through this, particularly during the pandemic, I mean, motherhood can be quite isolating at the best of times, but obviously it's 10 million times more isolating. And particularly for those communities who are maybe going back into lockdown, I think that's something that um, has been on my mind a lot lately, which is like the mums that are finally getting out there. And then some of those communities are going back into lockdown, which must be so hard. So if you know people in those circumstances, and obviously definitely reach out, that's such a great piece of advice, Anna. And then one more thing, I guess, because we really have run out of time now, which is um, what's the kind of one piece of advice that you would want to leave mums who are concerned about going going back to work and, you know, spending time away from their baby? Is there anything that's particularly helped you in your situation that any anything you'd want to share? I think I will tell you what like I am trying to tell myself, but it's sometimes hard to believe it. But oh my gosh, we've done so much like figuring out feeding and sleeping and being a mom and just to be gentle and kind to yourself and extend yourself that like kind of space to be imperfect and to figure it out and to have things still left on your list at the end of the day. And like, it's okay. Tomorrow's a new day. Um, I just, I can be so hard on myself. And for me, I know I'm harder on myself than any, but any boss or any, coworker, any client or any family member. So just to just to give myself a break, uh, to give yourself a break. That's my advice. I think that's top quality advice. So give yourself a break, everybody, but also just allow yourself the space to be imperfect. I think that is kind of beautiful. So um, look, Hannah, it's just been like the biggest pleasure ever. Thank you so, so much for your Likewise. time. What a what a joy to get to chat with you. And this stuff is like my life right now. So it's, it's nice to get to <laughs> talk about it. Good stuff. So look, what, tell us um, where can we reach your stuff? Like tell us all your handles etc social media because I'm sure that lots of people are dying to look at everything that you're doing all right um okay so my website is hannahoward.nyc my instagram is hannah m howard m like mary and i mean i think that that's enough you know there um i would love if anyone's interested in my book it's called feast true love in and out of the kitchen and it's usually available at all big booksellers. So I'm findable. Yeah, like like a boss. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks so much once again and have an awesome rest of your day, whatever it is you're up to. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. Well, everyone, that's the end. Thank you so, so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to New Leaf from wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode. Feel free to message me directly on Instagram at at Podcast if you like and on at Growth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalised pre and postnatal mum coaching programmes. Have a lovely, lovely day and if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye everybody.